Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Bottom Up Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Rachel, Program Director at Strong Towns. And before we get started, I want to mention a special event that's coming up, something that we've never done before, but we are excited to kick off. We're hosting a Late Night with Strong Towns virtual gathering on April 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It'll be an evening of fun, humor, and friendly competition as well. So we're going to do, as part of this, it'll include a Strong Towns trivia contest to test your knowledge of our Strong Towns history. We'll also have a behind-the-scenes look and live UpZone podcast recording featuring Chuck Marone and Abby Kinney. And then finally, we'll conclude with a Strong Towns Shark Tank with the chance to pitch your idea for Strong Towns to execute. And there will also be a lot of prizes. This event is open to all Strong Towns members. We're looking forward to the chance to get to know you a little better and have a fun time together. If you've been reading or listening to Strong Towns for a while now and wondering whether it's time to finally officially join the movement, maybe now is your moment. This event is just one of many opportunities that Strong Towns members have to connect with one another and staff, to add their input to the future of the organization, and of course, to support this Strong Towns movement that is growing resilient communities across the country. You can become a member at strongtowns.org membership for as little as $5 a month. And I'll let you know a little secret, actually. You could donate literally $1 a year and still be counted as a member. What really matters to us is that there is support and momentum for this Strong Towns movement across the country. And so knowing who has signed up and, and is ready to be a member at whatever level is so important to us. If you're already a member, you should have received an email invite in your inbox, uh, I believe yesterday, but if you didn't get yours, just contact Alexa at strongtowns.org and she will get it to you. All right, so let's talk about today's episode. Something that you might not know about Strong Towns is that we have been a remote work team for years, and that meant that we were really well prepared for working from home during the pandemic because that's the norm here. But it also means the downside that that so many of us have been getting to know over the last several months is that uh, we regularly go months without seeing our colleagues or Strong Towns members or you know anyone really from our audience. So it's extra special even during non-pandemic times when I do get to attend a Strong Towns event and meet a Strong Towns member. I have fond memories of one such occasion about five years ago when I got to travel to Rockford, Illinois to meet two Strong Towns members, Jennifer and Michael Smith, and uh, we joined Chuck Marone for a Strong Towns presentation and a walking tour around the city. Michael Smith and I recently reconnected, and it turns out he had some stories and updates to share. So he joins me on this episode along with his colleague, architect Aaron Halverson. Together, they work at Studio GWA, a planning and architecture firm based in Rockford. And in this conversation, we discuss a historic revitalization project in a core neighborhood of Rockford, the challenges that come with a project like this, and also why the street and surrounding blocks matter to the success of such a place. It's a great lesson in what it takes to bring an old building back to life, which is certainly not a piece of cake, but also it's a lesson in what can happen when a community develops this place that they can feel proud of and invested in. So here's my conversation with Michael Smith and Aaron Halverson. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bottom Up Revolution podcast from Strong Towns. 
Today's guests are Strongtown's member, Michael Smith, and his colleague, Aaron Halverson, who both work at Studio GWA in Rockford, Illinois. Welcome, Michael and Aaron, to the podcast. Thanks. Hi. So can you start out by each telling us a little bit about yourself and your community of Rockford, um, and, and probably also mention how long have you been in Rockford? Michael, why don't we start with you? Sure. Yeah. And thanks again for having us on. Um, I'm Michael Smith. Uh, we call Rockford home. Been born and raised here. Uh, it's also the home of Studio GWA. Uh, the firm has been here since 1982. I actually have been a member of Strong Town since 2015. And to say that uh, Strong Towns was like instrumental in me in my kind of career change in what I do is really an understatement. It's a pleasure of meeting you, Rachel and Chuck, back in uh, 2015 for a curbside chat of like three different neighborhoods in Rockford. And gosh, even prior to that, like some of just the basic vocabulary of like planning and advocacy, it, it came through the blog, it came through the website and the early podcasts. So yeah, after actually like 12 years in doing ministry, I kind of switched, switched careers and uh, went to school for transportation planning um, in Chicago. And I'm very fortunate to be able to be working back here in Rockford with Studio DWA. So that's a little bit about me. Wonderful. And Aaron, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? I am an architect and also exposed to Strong Towns a number of years back. I'm a CNU member and um, have been involved in some of that for the last 10, 12 years, something like that. And uh, have always been a, have been involved because of maybe my location. Um, I actually live in Southern Wisconsin in a small city called Monroe, where we actually just opened another office there. Small town, historic small town square. Early on in my career, I got involved in some small development with um, a couple of people there, including my employer at the time, kind of got in from the architecture and construction side, and that's continued. Um, And now I've been with Studio GWA for just about four years now. Again, similar project types. And even though I don't call Rockford home, glad to be involved and and, uh, very directly involved with a lot of these projects that are instrumental in the communities. So Michael, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Rockford itself for people who um, have not passed through or or spent time there before. Like, what is the what is the vibe in the city? Yeah, what's Rockford like? Sure. Yeah, Rockford, Illinois is a oh gosh, I think we're like the fourth or fifth largest community in the state, located about uh, ninety miles west, uh, a little north and west of Chicago. So, yeah, I mean, Rockford, in in many respects, feels like a pretty typical Midwestern mid-sized city at this point. I'd say it's it's heyday was like after the Great Chicago Fire. I think legend has it. There's probably some truth in this. After the Great Chicago Fire, Rockford, particularly the furniture, woodworking, construction industry really started to boom after that as the demand was, was there to help. Uh, with reconstruction afterwards. Sure, other communities played a part in that, but you know, some of, of Rockford's um, really uh, kind of first industrial beginnings was in like furniture making, woodworking, and things like that. And Rockford has just has been known as a very hardworking, industrious, uh, blue collar, we make things community. 
<laughs> one of the nicknames that we have here is Screw City because of the various screw making factories that we've had, particularly like World War II um, and really post World War II as well. But of course, these industries are either non-existent or they've they've dwindled, they've they've outsourced. We know how this goes. So that leaves us with both vacant properties, but also the challenge of where are we going to find our development or chase after that development. So our our core in traditional neighborhoods is hollowed out, especially in like the 60s through the 90s. And um, I think the firm's happy to say, uh, not too boastfully, but gosh, you know, after 40 years, we feel like we've really kind of cut our teeth on adaptive reuse and historic preservation projects. And that's been in Rockford's core. And so I think we play, we've played a pretty instrumental part in that. So it's a small footprint of Rockford's like total like urban boundary. But gosh, I think it really dovetails with the strong town principles, some of the building projects and planning projects that we do. So let's get into that. As you mentioned, one of the areas that your your firm works in is redevelopment of historic or underused or maybe even sort of neglected buildings. You told me beforehand that you're working with some dedicated Rockford residents who are fixing up some um, commercial buildings in the 1000 block of Fifth Avenue, I think you said. So tell me how this venture came to be. Um, That could be a question for either of you or both. Michael, why don't you start? You know Brad well, so he would be a good one to start with that. I do. And it's always fun when you get to talk about somebody else that's not in the room right now. <laughs> so, um, but Brad's a dear friend, and uh, it's been really fun to be on this project with him. So for those of you listening who you know want to uh, you know, have your, your Google Maps open uh, at the same time, this is 1005 Fifth Avenue in Rockford. It's 1005 Fifth Avenue. And that property is um, owned by a dear friend, Brad and Sue Roos who've lived in the Midtown neighborhood and have worked in the Midtown neighborhood for for several years now and have just been really proud to call it home. And um, they're in their older retirement years and they love to say, well, all their friends bought condos in Florida to kind of settle down their retirement. Their retirement is this building, 1005 Fifth Avenue, a series of storefronts uh, built in the 1920s, had different uses over the years, ranging from, oh gosh, I think it used to be a stable for horses, evolved into various other uses. The one that comes to mind is a potato chip factory, <laughs> a saw cutting place, vacuum place, all these various things, right? As little one story uh, commercial storefronts have, but um, they bought it for a song. Of course, it needed a lot of work. He just wanted a place for a wood shop, but then also wanted to use the existing storefronts for uses that would benefit the community. So they went in and this has been their retirement venture for, I'd say about three years, four years now. Yeah, we started with them in 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of setting the stage a little bit. And I was not here for the actual like work, but maybe Aaron, you could talk about, I don't know, some of the actual architectural work or maybe even like the financing or funding work behind it just to interest into that yeah like michael said the building needed a lot of work it was it was in a pretty sorry state which a lot of the buildings that we get involved with in uh, as as so many people are well aware and probably can think of many examples in their own communities of these um, quaint old buildings that just have 
not been loved for a long time. They were bold in taking it on, but it's uh, it's turned into a great little place again. It's gone through a lot of phases as these historic tax credit projects do as well. Um, there's just a little bit, I'm not sure how familiar you are, I guess, with that process, Rachel, if at all, historic tax credits. Yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about it? We don't need to get like too deep into it. But oh, that, that's fine. It's, yeah, it's, it, it's a mechanism that we that we and a lot of our clients use to help fund some of these projects, which is essentially the gist of it is the um, a building that exists in a um, historic neighborhood or is a landmark on its own. You're able to, you know, while performing the project under the parameters of the National Park Service rules and regulations, basically acquire tax credits for a certain percentage of the construction expenses. Um, And some states, depending upon the state, they have different uh, similar programs. In Illinois, it's certain certain areas, and um, Rockford is one of those cities that that applies um, or that that you're able to do that. So there's a state and a federal. But anyways, it's it's a way, especially in these smaller communities where, or smaller areas where the rent after renovation may not be high enough to sustain the cost of renovation, which is a big, uh, big hindrance to do a lot of these projects. They're just expensive to renovate these buildings. Um, it's a way to make up that difference, which is its intention. That's the whole reason for the program to maintain some ad- uh, original fabric and do it in a way that people can survive. So that was one of the mechanisms that they've been uh, they've been using. Um, but yeah, so the the storefront, it's a, as Michael said, it's a small storefront building, really a lot of great street presence, which is a, in some ways a blessing, a curse when it comes to traffic in some cases here. But <laughs> um, it's a it's a great little building, and uh, Braddens who have done a wonderful job executing a lot of a lot of work themselves as well, and a lot of community direct community involvement. So it's been kind of a fun one to be involved with. It's a lot more community involved than than some of the other projects that we get in on. So um, just hearing like the description of the tax credits, like there are even some times where I have to be like, wait, what does that mean? Wait, can you explain this more? <laughs> so like it's complex, right? And it's probably like some of the listeners are probably thinking, well, it takes a certain kind of person to make these projects work. And, and I would say yes. And it takes two certain types of people, right? It takes it takes the right developer and it takes the right architect. And I, I just wonder briefly if we could maybe speak to those. Like I'd speak to the former and you could speak to the latter, which to the former, like Brad and Sue's had a vision for the building. And it was very like just missional for them so to speak like just how much they believe in developing their own community um i think there's like some faith underpinnings behind what they do too like they they came through with like a mission statement they like tried to operationalize that in a few different ways one was like we're not putting craft paper on the windows we want people to see the transformation another thing that comes to mind is like they showed the process for the project on a flow chart which is a nerdiest thing to do but what they do is when they got you know demo of this particular storefront done then they'd highlight it people could walk by and see like oh they're not just sitting on this they're actually working on it um and just hiring local just by default so any scrap that came out of that from like you know uh the old boilers for example like they they didn't profit off of that they lift it 
bring it out to the curb and Larry the scrap guy like <laughs> he was the one who would take take that like that was great they just had that arrangement which was you take these weighty scrap items off our hands and you can take all of the money that comes from that like so it just takes the right developer to do these things but i also think it takes the right architect right like these things are very much hands-on and that's where i'd have to hand that over to aaron and he could talk about you know what sort of architect does it take to make something like this work what we get involved with especially on these these projects is identifying character elements, which early on is, you know, it's what it's what a lot of people can identify a building if forced to describe them. Things that you don't necessarily think about when you walk down a street, but also things that if they weren't there, you'd feel like something is wrong. That is a, I guess, a different different way of looking at the buildings initially. Um, and then, you know, that obviously gets into the interior of the building as well. It is a different and much more hands-on process because you do have to get involved with a lot of elements that, especially in, on the smaller developer side, I would say they typically will want to handle a lot of things themselves. And we maybe are a little bit more hands-off um, towards the end of a project. With, with historic tax credit projects, we kind of have to be involved throughout because there's a reporting process towards the end as well. And, and knowing that, there are certain things we have to suggest and then prove that we did what was what was said to the National Park Service to obtain those tax credits and all of those things. So there's a there's a whole process, but a lot of it comes down to and, and originates with understanding of the character of a building and what are the important elements, both to the exterior and interior, which can be a challenge sometimes, but maintaining them and also adapting the building to a new use that you know, this was never a wood shop before, but <laughs> adapting is there's some creativity there. I'd love to hear more about the community engagement, community involvement aspect of this project. You mentioned the, um, you know, leaving the windows clear so people can see what's happening. Are there other ways that the um, developers and you guys have involved the neighborhood in this work? Like us directly, I don't know if we've played a like a very direct role in like community engagement portions. A little bit, I'd say. Just a couple of ways might be like, so just the firm of the year is like, yes, it takes the right developer, it takes the right architect. Um, it also takes like the right tenant, you know, who's going to lease out that space and believe in the vision. Uh, so like, I know Brad has definitely, you know, been doing his part in like, you know, getting a packet together to like, encourage people to say, hey, if you're looking for a new space, here, here's one, two, or three, right? Um, but also because of, like, the network that we have here in Rockford in the Midwest, like, I know Gary, our firm founder in particular, has been doing that as well. I think that that helps. I think another example that comes to mind is, like, uh, when he was creating, like, the bicycle racks that go out Front. I think he was getting input from other people of like, how do I create bike racks that are, you know, have both form and function together so they can look unique, but also they actually just work, you know, walking your bike up. But on the form end of it, I think he has old saw blades that have been filed down from like the old saw place that was there. So like just kind of getting some of the history in it, but still making them function. Uh, I know early on, uh, you know, one of the big costs here, it's the most of the exterior of the building is storefront, which it's an expensive thing to restore. 
Uh, and so community involvement, one, and I think you might have been there on one of the days upper, uh, the, the transom above them, all of the storefronts was prism glass, which is common in, in you know, in these areas, um, but it all need to be restored. Well, it's a costly and very expensive thing to remove for one. And Brad's a very uh, industrious guy. Figured out a way to get thing get them removed, but there was it was it was kind of fun to see because they, I mean, there was a turnout of a number of people from the neighborhood to help in. You know, it just took a lot of hands. Brad and Sue's passion for the community, not just the building, is exhibited through how many people will turn up to help them on a on a Saturday morning to uh, remove storefront windows and you know, package them all up to be sent to their friend who's also, you know, they're, they're hired to restore the prism glass and things of that sort. So in, in that way, direct in community involvement in some ways, just through, you know, shared physical labor. Yes. Yeah. Kind of, Ashley is not with us on the call. One of our other staff members, like she, she was using the phrase barn raising a little bit of like, it, it just takes many hands to, and it's by design. That's how Brad and Sue would want it. Um, so, uh, yes, my wife and I were swinging sledgehammers really early on, and uh, they've had other people helping with various things, too. Gary has stopped Great. by. Near, he lives in the neighborhood, so uh, he's he's been over there many a weekend, to, whether it's just to talk about progress or whatever it may be. So what are the next steps or where are you at in this process? When will you know businesses be able to uh, start occupying these um, commercial spaces? I know that two of the spaces are very close. There's a, by nature of how they're, how they're doing it, you know, it's, they haven't bid it off all in one big chunk and do everything in a year. It's been kind of a slowly evolving process. There are some things that, that are still yet to come through, but I think that a couple of them are, a couple of the spaces are within a couple of months of being rented um, or rentable, I should say. Um, we have gone through a couple of discussions with potential tenants. The last year did complicate some of that for a couple of the tenants that, or a couple of potential tenants, I should say, that uh, backed out of, of, or or just became not as interested at the moment. Um, I don't I don't know if that's a permanent thing, but so very soon things will be ready. There's been some challenges recently <laughs> with a, you know, the the building was struck by a truck, which stepped them back a little bit in the construction process, because then some repairs needed to be done that were a little bit more significant and obviously unplanned. That also slowed things down a little bit. But but yeah, they're they're very close. They're very close. Zooming out a little bit, why do you guys and Brad and Sue, if you want to speak to their motives, you know, why do you think that this particular space was important? I imagine there's probably other empty spaces in Rockford, but as this like neighborhood commercial space, why is that an important thing to try to to redevelop and bring back into life in the community? All of us have certain buildings that, uh, regardless of their grandeur or lack thereof, there's an attraction to in some form. You love that building in your neighborhood that, it, whether it's unimpressive or not, there's just something about it that sparks positive feelings in you. I have one in my hometown of Monroe. Every time I tell somebody about it, they're 
wonder why I like I pick that building as the building that I want to want to restore. I I do wonder if some of that is the case with Brad and Sue. It's and I, and I can understand. I you know I look at a lot of old buildings and it had a lot of character. Uh, it's a, in a fairly prominent location in that neighborhood as well, and it just needed love badly. <laughs> And I also think that Brad likes challenges, as does Sue. <laughs> They're very, very determined people. But I think a lot of it is that just a, you know, like you said, there are a lot of options. There are a lot of options even in that neighborhood for buildings that they could have chosen to, to do. And I'm sure they probably the decision process was multifaceted there, size and amount of, you know, what they wanted to, to bite off. But that one, you know, I guess in the end, the positives out outweighed the negatives as far as desire goes. And uh, I suppose the price had to be right too. In the end, you got to be able to do it. So, um, Yeah, right. Michael, do you have any to add on that? Yeah, I, well, stepping back even a little bit more too, I'm sure Rockford is not the only community where like we have high construction costs, but the rents that we're able to get commands, like they just don't, they don't add up. So I know we have another coworker here who just, typically uses the adage of like we have Chicago construction costs, but like not Chicago friends. So what, what happens then when we have vacant properties that are just less sitting, um, which, you know, we have particularly downtown, downtown adjacent, south and west, which I would say is in the midtown neighborhood, right? Like that's where it's located. And so, yeah, oftentimes like, it's kind of the but for of the vision of folks like Brad That's where you can typically start. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, you just see vacant buildings falling to repair, and it's you're waiting a long time to see new construction. So I'm not sure about this particular neighborhood, but I know downtown, like the central business district, the number used to be something to the effect of uh, there have only been eight newly constructed buildings in downtown since like 1970 and all but like two of them were government buildings so you know it's just the the, the divestment uh has has been particularly profound in downtown and i would hazard to say in in midtown as well so you have these the vacant building stock and you know it takes a vision of certain folks to oftentimes be the catalyst and turn the tide in many ways they kind of require they're almost required to be a passion project in uh, in many ways not, not always but you know a someone whose only goal is to make money it's hard to justify sometimes if your only goal and i want 15 percent return or 12 percent return on my investment can be a challenge to get there you can do it it's just a it's a challenge especially at a really small scale you couple obviously again it has to make financial sense but you couple that with passion and uh, a desire to help the community which you know brad and sue are a good example of i can think of a couple others as well that i've worked with that are very much that way they're willing to not get as high of a return potentially or take or at least take the chance that they might not um, knowing that the community return will be will be worth it yeah well said I want to switch gears for a second a little bit to talk about the street, 6th Street, um, that this redevelopment project is near to. Yeah, as Michael mentioned at the start, Chuck Marone and I were in Rockford 
five years ago or so. And I remember we did this walking tour uh, along this street and Chuck pointed out that, yeah, this, this was a really problematic. It's like four lanes at strong towns. We would call this a strode because it's functioning both as a street with businesses and activity along it, but it's also a road, which is moving cars very quickly. And that's a really dangerous combination and it's harmful for economic productivity and neighborhood life. Michael, are there any changes that have happened to that street since, uh, that, that visit five years ago and how does that impact the success of this um, redevelopment project? Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, there, oh, no. There have not been any changes. Yeah. Yeah. But again, like, you know, part of the existing conditions work is taking, uh, I guess, an honest account and vocalizing it like projected, which like when um, there's been some initial discussions that have been generated from Brad after his building was struck by a, a motorist who failed to obey a, a stoplight. Anyway, it landed into his building and, you know, everybody's okay. I think the, the building is fine. Obviously, it's the least of it, right? Um, but it definitely is indicative of kind of the, the high-capacity, low-volume roadway, right? But, um, yeah, even in our initial calls with, with stakeholders, um, a couple of them said we were on that walk with Chuck, and um, he said something to the effect of this this street is a dividing line in your neighborhood. It's People kill your businesses if you do not pay attention to it. And even just temporary elements like straw bales. kept talking about straw bales in this last call we had. You know, things like that. Things in the street, three-dimensional things in the street can be one increment, one step toward doing something about it, right? So, yeah, yeah. It has very much affected the the, the building, I would say, yes, because there are even challenges, you know, sidewalk-wise. It's, it's because of the scale of the road right next to it, and, I mean, right where the truck drove through, I stood on that corner many times taking pictures of the building or measuring things or whatnot so it's a it's not a comfortable not a comfortable sidewalk to be on right there so it's i'm sure and rad is well aware of this that it's a that is definitely a challenge to that location right yeah and again reference probably not too different than other communities as well like this one-way pairing that is in, kind of surrounding the midtown neighborhood was you know converted to one way to accommodate the kind of suburban industrial community triplets of the 60s, right? And it just made sense when you had three times the average daily traffic volume. Now they're running like three to 6,000 vehicles a day, depending on the road segment. And again, if, you know, folks that know about transportation planning, that's not a lot of vehicles. Um, and it's definitely enough to serve with a lane, one lane of traffic, definitely not two. And then right now, that one way is three to four lanes, depending on what segment you're looking at. So uh, when you have that much road capacity and perhaps a third of the cars from what it was at its peak decades ago, um, it's very easy to see how it can be a drag strip at any given time of the day, especially after rush hour, you know. Oh, I'm glad people are at least talking about it. Um, and I hope I hope there's change, but I know that your community is not alone in having one of these really problematic, dangerous roads that runs right through, you know, an important area. Yeah, it's it's a big challenge to I think it's especially a big challenge to those smaller redevelopments or developments because you also feel like you don't have a whole lot of leverage, you know. 
not promising a $40 million project on a corner or anything, anything like that. It's a, you know, a community level. It, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And I mentioned earlier that we've had like initial calls with um, stakeholders and city staff and, that's been helpful and a really good reminder that like in communities such as ours, like, yes, we'll, we'll take all like the active transportation folks we can get. We'll take all like the safe streets advocate folks we can get, but like those, the people that were on the call would never brandish themselves as that. Like we just had a business owner who said, you know, we had to install a granite wall in front of our building because we were tired of fixing the repairs you know that needed to be made and another was just saying i just want people to park safely outside of my building so when they get out their door doesn't fly off like so we're all wanting the same thing and it's just helpful to have folks who wouldn't even be a part of the strong town's lexicon so to speak but they they know what they need and as long as we can kind of dovetail that um you know and really work in unison together um i i, I think that's helpful right having one voice and organizing your community towards you want. So um, just a good reminder, like we don't we don't have to live like in a you know urban community that has like the street plug Rockford, which would be awesome, but we don't have that. We just have people who own businesses and they don't want their buildings part of the vehicle. <laughs> yeah. To close this out here, I'd love to ask both of you what advice you would have for other advocates who want to take action to make their towns stronger, uh, maybe around a historic redevelopment project or a street improvement or just anything that folks would want to do to uh, help impact their community in a positive way and make it more economically, financially resilient. Aaron, let's start with you. What advice would you have for folks listening? I would say after observing and being involved on the architecture side and, and some small development side, that the big thing is just being willing to take a small step, take a risk on something small. We have known a number of people in our small town of Monroe and uh, my wife and I recently as well, the seeing a a building, you know, I, I err on the building side. I am a, I'm an urban design, urban designer as well, but uh, I, I know how to put buildings together and take them apart. So I, I default to that. My suggestion and I guess a spur to people is if you know of a building in an area that needs work and it's a building that you could, you could love, fix it up because it will inspire the people around you to do some things too. Sometimes it takes some time, but um, I think everybody in a, you know, people in a community, whether it's voiced regularly or not, when given something to be proud of, even if it's not, even if it's not something they did, they will be excited about it and it will inspire them to do some things to improve things as well. Um, which obviously as properties improve in a neighborhood, whether it's residential or commercial, there's some natural reaction to that that you know economically it will tend to do better and i don't know i would say you see more people on the streets as well but yeah so taking small steps pick a small thing that you're willing to uh learn either if it's on the building side learn how to do some of the things yourself so that you can financially make it work and uh make it make a uh, step to improve improve the community 
Yeah. And that's such a good point about like taking one step will inspire others and make them feel that they're, they're part of this redevelopment work too. I love that. Michael, what advice would you have for folks listening who are interested in, in, you know, community revitalization, um, making streets safer, whatever it is to make their town stronger? Gosh, I'll say uh, since the visit uh, a few years ago, um, you and Chuck, uh, gosh, it was 2015 now. You know, since then, like, <laughs> I just, I oscillate between, like, just being incredibly discouraged and then just, like, you know, picking up a paint can and just making a crosswalk today somewhere, you know? And I think to the former point, like, when you see how long it takes to get things done, and I know this, like, probably irks Chuck among us, uh, others as well, like, you know, well, Sixth Street's not set for anything in the capital improvement plan, and that's five years out. So the next time we'll get that in could be like six years out or seven to 10 years out. And you're just like, I'm going to be 50. Like, I can't wait that long. Um, so like, it can be very, really discouraging to to hear something like that and think, well, gosh, how many crashes might there be? Or I can't forbid, like, how many people could it struck or buildings hit? Um Right, like for that to, uh, how many years do you have to wait for something to take place? So I know this still feels like a big comment, but like take the, like embrace interim strategies, take temporary fixes. Like the Strong Town site is full of them. Like interim strategies on like the National Association for City Transportation Officials, NACDO, like the design guidelines are out there for free. And like even if you can take those and like, work with other passionate people in your little area, whether it's a block or a district or a whole neighborhood to say, just this intersection or just this block or just this small segment of street, like, you know, the lived experiences that I'm hearing tell me that this is unsafe. Maybe I don't have access to the data set, but doggone it, like this parent doesn't feel like their kid can cross the street to get to school. Like, let's work at that granular level not disrespecting the fact that there's a process for things at the municipal or state or federal level, but like, don't be discouraged, like work at that block by block level and organize the folks to get things done. Yeah. Amen. Good words. Well, Aaron and Michael, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation and for the inspiring work that you're doing in Rockford. Love to hear about it. So thanks for being here guys. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. So that was Michael and Aaron with Studio GWA. As always, friends, my inbox is open for you to share what you're doing to take action in your community or share any feedback that you have for this show too. Uh, I'm open to positive, negative, anything in between. I would love to make this uh, a better show for all of you. My email is rachel at strongtowns.org. That's R-A-C-H-E-L at strongtowns.org. Leave me a voicemail or a written message. And then just circling back to that reminder at the beginning of this episode, we have Late Night with Strong Towns coming up in a couple of weeks. Join as a member of Strong Towns so you can get your exclusive invite. We would love to have you. Strongtowns.org slash membership. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week. We'll see you back here for the next episode.